Good morning, Evergreen family, and welcome to Sunday service. My name is January, and I am the worship arts pastor here. It is definitely a privilege to be able to be your speaker today. For the past month and a half, we have been preaching on the book of Esther, and this series, as a friendly reminder, is named Hidden because at first glance, you don't see an explicit mentioning of God nor his activity in the entire book. However, as my pastoral colleagues have been preaching on the different characters every week, I pray that we have been able to learn that God's activity is still going on all around us, regardless whether or not we see it. And I pray that this series has been a blessing to you throughout these crazy, invisible God sort of times. Today, we uh, finish up this series by finally focusing on our titular character, Queen Esther. And, you know, growing up as a child, I always thought that Queen Esther was like my home girl. She was the crowning jewel of my illustrated children's Bible book. She was beautiful. She was brave. She was a savior of her people. She had green eyes. I mean, come on, hashtag goals. But upon further study of this text throughout our series, um, upon prepping for this sermon, I very much realize that the book of Esther is dark. It is unresolved, it is complicated, and it is a scathing commentary on what society looks like when people are trying to hoard power and when we are stuck in systems of complete imbalance of that power. Esther was a powerless character to begin with. And we see that from the get-go, she is an orphan. Right? part of the most oppressed and marginalized class of her time. Two, she is a woman, right? Women were second-class citizens as opposed to men. We'll come back to that. Three, she was a refugee, a Jew living in exile uh, within a mighty foreign empire called Persia. And yet Esther becomes queen. How? Well, first, to be honest, it was out of her control. The fact that she was a beautiful woman ended up playing against her. She was dragged into royal captivity in order for King Xerxes to find a new wife. But second, she was forced to deny her own cultural roots. While we don't know if it was actually dangerous for Esther to exist as a Jew within the royal courts, we do know that her male guardian and cousin Mordecai actually told her, advised her to do so. So there may have been a pretty good reason. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm Korean-American and it just kind of oozes out of me, right? It defines my, my palette. It defines my Spotify playlist. Hello, BTS and Mamamoo. You know, it defines my Netflix queue, right? Pastor Shirley, Virgil, those Korean dramas. And it defines my worship, the way that I pray, the way that I view my elders. Every aspect of my life, even though I'm Korean-American, is defined by my cultural heritage, I can't even imagine what it was like for Esther, an orphan whose only ties to her community was her Jewish identity, to have to cut herself off from that, to be an imposter to her very own people, to her very own person dumb. Now, imposter syndrome is something that I deal with almost on a daily basis. Um, I guarantee you, after I shoot the sermon, I'm going to question myself. And it's, um, it's basically the inability to embrace one's talents and one's achievements due to one's skills, right? And I think this is a very common thing that I know 
a lot of my friends deal with and friends who are brilliant social activists even, worship leaders, pastors, like we all deal with this imposter syndrome, which is why I feel like it's actually an encouraging thing to note that God calls someone such as Esther into her position as queen. And it's not like God leaves her there. We quickly see that Esther is about to snap. That's right. We see this in chapter four. Esther by this time has been queen for around five years. And she has been meeting up with her her cousin Mordecai here and now just to kind of catch up on life because she actually has no idea what's going on apparently in, in the current events around her. And Mordecai tells her this extremely crazy bit of news that Haman, a politician very close to King Xerxes, is planning a massive genocide to eradicate the Jewish people. And now Mordecai is telling her this and and he tells her all of a sudden, after telling her all this time, hide your identity, hide your identity, he says, no, now you must go expose yourself for your people. And if you don't, they will die and so will you. And, you know, growing up, I always used to view this, um, I had this like Bible children, uh, children's Bible thing on tape. And this story was like kind of narrated in dramatic voice. And I always heard this, right? Mordecai's like, Esther, you must do this. And Esther's like, you're right. I should do this. If I perish, then I perish, you know? But actually, I feel like probably in this moment is when Esther has absolutely had it. She's tired. She's exhausted. She's been living life as a fraud queen. She's been pleasuring this king who likes to throw drunken parties, who has an advisory board of crazy, toxic masculinity sort of brotherhood, right? She's expected to remain silent and invisible otherwise. She has been excommunicated from her community, not even allowed to see her guardian for more than you know once every so many days or weeks. She's tired, and I believe that when Mordecai says this, something within her snaps. Enough is enough, is what I think she's saying. And she realizes that she must step beyond her imposter syndrome and do something about it. I think it's the first time we see her truly claiming her right to her throne. We all of us see, we all of a sudden see an orphan imposter queen step into a woman of power. And this is what she says. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Not for the Jewish people, not for Persia, not for King Xerxes to change his mind, but she demands that her people pray for her. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, then I perish. Friends, I want to encourage us today, maybe in the coming week, what areas of our lives are we struggling to just pass through the day as someone that someone else has expected us to be? Where have you cut corners in terms of who we are in order to be accepted or embraced by somebody else? And is God calling us to break through that glass ceiling of identity? I want to encourage us that maybe when we do, we'll find ourselves to be in a position of power that we've never experienced before. From here on out, the author writes that Mordecai follows 
the orders, the summons that Queen Esther gave. From here on out, we see that Esther throws lavish banquets. She becomes the host of the parties, inviting King Xerxes and Haman. She's able to, to um, think of a plan, drop a plan along with Mordecai. She's able to kind of extend her power to this cousin who's had power over her previously, right? Her entire countenance, her entire identity evolves. And she's able to wield it beautifully, not just merely as a beautiful vessel, but as someone who's able to save her community. Now, I wish I could end the sermon right here. But again, like I said, this book is unresolved. And there's something that we cannot ignore, which is the imbalance of power between genders that is very much front page and center as we begin the story. I am not a feminist theologian and I am nowhere near knowledge as much as I like to be. I'm not gonna bring in any outside statistics here to prove a point and my job here isn't to just be like, yo, 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 right? That's not my job. I'm just going to highlight some of the things that the book of Esther contains, which should, I think, provoke enough questions within us. The book begins with Queen Vashti becoming ceremoniously, unceremoniously, sorry, again, kicked out of her throne. Why? King Xerxes is having a party. He's throwing a really big one. He's gotten a little tipsy. He wants to show his brothers his beautiful wife. Sure, what man wouldn't, right? So he calls for his wife and his wife, maybe she had already taken her makeup off. Maybe she was in bed reading a good book, but she declines the king's offer. The king gets a little embarrassed and then he turns to his bros and asks, hey, friends, what should I do about this? And they say, wait, 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 this is, this is, dangerous, right? This is dangerous. She defied you, the queen defied the king? Well, now what would the, the, the other wives do? They're going to dishonor their husbands too. We need to issue a decree that states that women, right, should never dishonor men, that, that wives should never dishonor their husbands. Now I'm telling this story a little facetiously, but imagine an advisory board filled with men issuing a decree that will keep women in a subservient role to men. This is not a new story, nor is it an old one. And then we see once Queen Vashti is gone, what does the king and his advisory board do? They gather all the young, beautiful young virgins found in the city. They force them into the court and for over a year they're groomed for no other reason than to pleasure and please the king. They go from one harem where they're being prepared. Once the king calls them, they are sent to a second harem where the concubines live. They have no choice in the matter. They are completely powerless as they are held captive in this royal court. Imagine a group of young, powerless women used by men in powerful places for pleasure. This is disturbing. And this is not a new story, nor is it an old one. And yes, there are stories of redemption. There are women who have broken out of those systems. One of the reasons why I feel so blessed to serve here at Evergreen is actually because 
I kind of feel respect from my, the brothers on the staff that I have never received before within ministry life. I mean, I'm not calling him out, but the fact that Pastor Jonathan as the eldest male staff member on this team, right? The fact that he listens to my suggestions for worship, the fact that he like turns in his videos when I ask him to, like that is unheard of. Right In my culture, it's usually the opposite around. The younger serves the elder, the female serves the male. It's, it's always gonna be like that. And so I think it's just an incredible place that Evergreen is in. And I have been incredibly rejuvenated and replenished in terms of life by serving here with this team. And this is why I say this both fearfully with a lot of gratitude and with a lot of trust. Brothers of our Evergreen family, whether you're a father, whether you know you are a son, a brother, you know, I want us to consider in what ways maybe are we still operating under a cultural or religious or social code that decrees that women be subservient to men, that plays to the scale where there is a great imbalance of power just because of the gender that we identify with. I'm not just trying to call, I'm not calling you out. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying the test itself asks us to ponder upon this and to recognize that when there is such an imbalance, tragedies occur, lives are destroyed. I think last but not least, the book of Esther ends with quite a violent struggle, right? It ends on a violent note. I mean, the great news is Jews don't have to be defenseless against a massive genocide, right? They're actually, Queen Esther and Mordecai are able to issue another decree which allows the Jews to arm themselves in defense. But what we do see, right, is that there is still a slaughter of 500 people. We don't know if these 500 people were deserving of death. Some of them were related to Haman. So I guess, you know, the, the whole Avenger stuff, sure. But I think to that certain point, it's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I don't know. I feel uncomfortable reading about any kind of violence in the Bible. Maybe that's just me. And then there's a lot of theology that we could talk about here. A lot of philosophies, a lot of different conversations that can come out of this for another sermon, for another pastor. But I just want to say this. I don't believe that power is meant to be transferred. We see through this book of Esther from the Persians, let's say to the Jews, when power just goes from one person group to the other, what happens? Violence and death occurs. I have to believe that the text is kind of pushing against it. That's causing us to stop and say, well, is this what it's meant to be? Is this actually right? Is power just merely meant to be transferred? Or is it meant to be shared. You know, this book, Book of Esther ends, chapter 10, with the elevation of Mordecai. It extols Mordecai the Great. And when I first read it, I was like, what? What? Like, why is he stealing Esther's thunder, right? Like, why does it end on Mordecai instead of Esther? But I have to again believe that this is about the fact that power doesn't belong from King Xerxes you know, to Haman, to, to Esther, that's not where it's going. I think what it shows is that you see a sharing of this power with the king of Persia, with the royal imposter, beautiful Queen Esther, 
and Mordecai the Jew. The black social activist Fannie Lou Hamer says this, nobody's free until everybody's free. I pray, people of God, that this week, throughout this sermon series, we will be able to ask ourselves the difficult questions about where we hold power, of where we're trying to hoard it, of why we're afraid to share it, in what ways we feel powerless, what causes us to act an imposter. And as we seek answers to some of these difficult questions, may we find freedom in the presence of the Holy Spirit.